So we are in a section of scripture. We're in Colossians. I call it essential Jesus for unsettled days. And we're in a text that is probably the biggest, most important text on who Jesus is. You could call it Jesus's biography, whatever name you have, it's brilliant. There's none, no other section that's as clear as this. So we're gonna dive in, got a lot to do. Verse 15, chapter one, Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Wow. Gigantic mouthful. So I'm gonna try to divide it into seven bites so maybe we can digest it, right? Bite number one, bite number one is Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The word image there is the Greek word icon, where we get icons. So what does it mean that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? Is it he's a picture of it or a portrait or a painting of it? Is that what it means? Is a picture or a portrait the same as the real thing? Hmm. Right? Dads, if you've been gone from your family on a trip or whatever, and you come home and your kids and your wife are all there, right? Do you come in and like, hey, get out of my way. I want the family portrait. You grab the family portrait and start hugging and kissing the family portrait. If you do, stop. Because that's weird. No, because it's not the real thing. So what does this mean? To clear it up, if you look down at verse 19, here's what it says. For in him, all, how much is all? All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus, 100% God, 100% man. 
He is not the embodiment of God, he is God. He's not the bringer of God's word, he is God's word. Father and son, the same, right? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. And we already kind of know that, like dads, you know this, if you've had sons, there's at some point where you're like, oh no, he's me, right? I remember I had three daughters and daughters are awesome, but they're different. And then I had Elijah. And I remember there was a moment where I'm like, oh no, he is exactly like me. Look out world. So we had got these two little ducks and ducks are really cool pets because they imprint on you and then you become mother duck and they follow you around the room or follow you around the lawn. It's really cool. So the ducks were growing up and Elijah wanted to teach them how to swim. We gotta teach the ducks how to swim. I'm like, you don't have to teach them to swim. They'll know. He's like, how? Yeah, I had to learn how to swim. How do ducks just know how to swim? I don't know. They have a saying, like a duck too. Water, they just know how. So he's like, well, let's check it out. So we walk down from our house down to our little pond and the ducks are following Elijah and we get down there and the ducks just jump in and they're swimming. It's amazing. It's so cool to see a duck swim for the first time. Like they're excited. And while we're standing there, we had two goats at the time and the two goats just came over and they're also like, that's pretty cool. Look at those things swim, right? So we're all just watching the ducks swim. And Elijah, he, he's three, he tugs on my coat and he says this, dad, can we push a goat in to see if it can swim? And I'm like, no way. I was thinking the same thing right at the same time. We're exactly the same. <laughs> Jesus is the express image. He's the same as God. And here's why that's awesome. We have these questions. What is God like? Ever thought that? Well, the answer is real simple. Read about Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's how you find out. How would God treat sinners, you might wonder? Look at Jesus. Jesus in John chapter eight is teaching at the temple mount. And as he's teaching, all of a sudden there's a ruckus in the crowd and thrown at his feet is a naked woman caught in the very act of adultery. Now you talk about a major distraction to a teaching, that's way up there. Makes me so glad that all I deal with is crying babies and cell phones. Like I'll take that any day. No naked women, please. And the men that grabbed her and threw her down had rocks in their hands. And they said this, Jesus, the law commands us to stone her to death. What are we gonna do? And you know what happens, Jesus kneels down and begins to write in the dirt. And the Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote. It just says this, the men from the oldest to the youngest dropped their stones and took off. So what was he writing in the dirt? Maybe a man's name, Jacob. And maybe another woman, Miriam, October 24, 84. Oh, that was me. I'm out of here. I don't know what it was, but they all left. And Jesus then looks at the woman and says, where are your accusers? And she says, they're all gone. And Jesus says, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. How does Jesus treat sinners? Wow. How does Jesus treat liars and cheaters and thieves? Luke chapter 19. You know the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, a wee little man, was he? Climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. I'd sing the song for you, but you'd hate me. 
so I won't. And Jesus comes along and he is the most hated individual. Here's why. That town would hate him. He was the Roman tax collector. So he was a Jewish man working for the enemy government. And his job was the only way he gets paid is if he overcharges people. That's how he made money. So he made money by getting more than he should have gotten. And on top of that, he was a tax collector. No one likes tax collectors. I have yet to see the bumper sticker that says, I heart the IRS. I haven't seen it yet, right? He's a triple hated man, liar, cheater, thief. And what does Jesus do? Walks by him, sees him in the tree and says, hey, tonight let's have dinner. Your house, because I don't have one. And you got money, so you can buy it. Jesus treats him like someone deserving an audience with the king. How does Jesus treat the vulnerable? Or how does God treat the vulnerable? You might ask, you look at Jesus. Luke chapter seven, Jesus is at this dinner and it's high class. It's governors, senators, like high class people at this guy named Simon's house. And there, if you know this, when you had meals 2000 years ago in Israel, you didn't sit at a table, you laid down, the table was only 18 inches tall or so, and you kind of recline on your pillow or on your elbow and you'd eat with your hand. And so Jesus is there with all the top people. And somehow this woman of the night makes her way past the secret service. Somehow she gets in there, finds Jesus's feet, and then begins to wash his feet with her tears and her hair and perfume. And the guy whose house it is, his name is Simon. He sees this happen and he thinks in his head, that's all, just a thought in his head is this. If Jesus was a true prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is and would never let her touch him. And Jesus looks at Simon and knows the very thought in his head. How crazy is that? Would you wanna have a meal with Jesus? Right? We all have those crazy thoughts just while we're eating, like just kind of go through your head. And Jesus looks at you and goes, really? Really, man? I think I would just sit there and quote Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? Just keep my mind free of any crazy thought. And this is what Jesus says. He gives a story about a man who owed a big amount and he gets forgiven. And he says this about this woman. The person that is forgiven much loves much. He defends her. The most vulnerable person in that society, Jesus defends. I can go on and on and on and on. You wanna know what God's like? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because Jesus is the express image of the Father. That's number one. Number two, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, if you're a Bible thinker at all, that should make you go, what? Firstborn? What does that mean? Because here's what every cult does to Jesus. They have to reduce him from his prominence to something else, right? He's not God, he's not divine, he's not the authority, he's not the way, he's not the truth, he's not the life, he's just a man, he's just a teacher, he's a created angel, he's the brother of Lucifer. Somehow they have to reduce who Jesus is. And a lot of times they'll use this verse right here. Look, he's firstborn. And this hasn't just been something recent. For 2000 years, the character of Jesus has been attacked. In fact, if you go back and read history, there was this big event that happened. These groups called the Arianists came out and they said this, Jesus isn't God. 
he's just a man. And that got put down pretty quick, but the roots of those sprouted what was called the semi-Arianists and it took off. And the semi-Arianists about 1800 years ago, they said this, Jesus is half God, half man. Now, why would they say that? Because if you know your history, your mythology, almost every civilization has this story about the gods coming down from wherever they're at, Mount Olympus, wherever it was, gods coming down, having relations with women and producing offspring that were half God, half man. In fact, Hercules is the offspring of Zeus and alchemy, that Thebian woman, and he was half God, half man. So Hercules is an example of it. And so what the semi-Aranists said was this, if Jesus is half God, half man, everyone will accept him because we all have stories of that happening. Now, why would almost every ancient civilization have a story in their history about the gods coming down and having relations with women? Here's what I think. In Genesis chapter six, perhaps you've read it. One of the craziest little verses says this, the Benai Elohim, the sons of God, saw that the daughters of Eve were pleasant looking and they came down, had relations with them and produced these mighty, mighty men, these men of renown, the Rephaim. You're like, what is that? Yeah, crazy story. And then the flood comes. And I think in every single cultural, cultural psyche, that, that thing that we carry with us, we all have this memory of that. And that's where these stories come from. So they say, look, if Jesus is half and half like that, man, he'll be accepted. Everyone will believe in him. It became so divisive and crazy that the church said, we got to solve this. And you have the very first church council ever in 325 AD, which was about this. What is the relationship between God and Jesus? And so the council started to talk and they had this word that they said, we're going to choose this word. It's homo. Usius, which means identical. It's a Greek word. I just transliterated it. It's a Greek word, identical. God and Jesus are identical. But then the semi-Arianist said, no, 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 no. Don't use that word. Use the second word. It's homo. And they added a little I in there. The Greek letter iota, usius, which means similar. Not identical, Similar. And that church council 1,700 years ago said, no, we will not give you one iota. That saying came from that church council in 325 AD. No, Jesus and God are identical. That's what the Bible teaches. Okay, Matt, that's great. But what does firstborn mean? Because you're still having to deal with that. Are the Jehovah Witnesses, are they right that Jesus is a created being, the top angel, number one angel, but still created? Here's, I'm gonna give you a secret about the Bible. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. That when the authors of the New Testament were writing the Bible, the dictionary that they had was the Old Testament. And if you wanted to know what a word means, you don't go to Greek culture in 100 AD. You go to the Old Testament and see how that word was used because it informed them. It was their dictionary, their vocabulary. So how does the Old Testament use firstborn? Does it use for birth order 
Or is it something else like status? Well, let me give you two texts. Jeremiah 31, nine. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, if you know your history about the tribes of Israel, Joseph, who was sold into slavery, goes down into Egypt, gets married, has two kids, Manasseh and then Ephraim. Ephraim was not the firstborn. But something happens when Jacob, grandpa meets his first, his grandkids for the first time. He wants to bless them. So Joseph brings out Ephraim and Manasseh, puts Manasseh where the right hand would go because the right hand was the hand of prominence and status. And then put him so that the left hand would fall on Ephraim. But Jacob, grandpa, crosses his arms and blesses Ephraim with his right hand, giving him status and preeminence and Manasseh with his left hand. And that's what this is talking about. Ephraim, not the firstborn in birth order, but in prominence and status. How about Psalm chapter 89? I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil, I have anointed him. Talks a bunch about this and says this, I will make him the firstborn. Was David the firstborn son of Jesse? No, you know the story. Samuel tells Jesse, listen, we're anointing a new king. Get all your boys out because one of them is gonna be the next king. So Jesse gets all his boys out and Samuel starts to pray as he sees each one. The first guy, God says, no, I've rejected him. Second, no. Third, no. Fourth, no. Fifth, no. Sixth, no. Seventh, no. What? And he looks at Jesse and says, do you have any other sons? Of course he brought all his sons, right? This is the day one of them is gonna be king. Nope. Jesse says, I've got one more. Oh, but he's out in the field with the sheep. He is not a king, trust me, man. He's an embarrassment to me. He plays the harp. He dances all the time, wears leotards. He'll probably come in here with a leotard on. Golly, he's not a king, right? But he's the one that God wanted and he becomes the king. Not the firstborn in birth order, but in status and preeminence. That's what the text is saying right here. Jesus has preeminence. He has the status of that. We use it today. The first lady, right, has a status. That's what's being said here. Not created. And if you doubt me, look at the next one. Jesus is creator. Check this out. For by him, all things. How many things? All things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things. And if you doubt me on all, Paul would say, let me just detail it. Heaven, earth, visible, invisible, throne, dominion, ruler, authority, all things. What is Paul making real clear here? Jesus created everything. If Jesus created everything, what can't he be? Created. Because if he was created, then he didn't create everything. Does that make sense? All right. The Bible is very clear on this. Jesus is creator of everything. 
not created, eternal. Now today, we have a battle on this, right? And the battle is between creationism, what the Bible says happened, and naturalism, right? What science is saying happens. So it's either Jesus created everything or nothing created everything. Those are your two choices. And there's a battle between them. I remember when I went to school, it was taught as fact. When we looked at the origin of life or we looked at the origin of the universe, it was like, we, I don't know how many times my professors would say, we know this is fact. We know, we know this happened. We know, even though it was 15.4 billion years ago, we know it happened like this. Well, do they really know it happened like that? That's what they say publicly. Do they really know? I'll give you two examples. Origin of life. This guy, he's a Nobel prize winner, very smart dude. Jack Sizak, I think that's how you pronounce his name if I butchered it. My apologies to Jack. But he gives an article in Nature Magazine, 2018. So do we have it? And he just kind of lays out, here's the steps, seven steps by which we got life. And so you can read them if you want, but I want to look at number five. So here's what he says. Life, as we know it, requires RNA. Some scientists, which scientists? Tell me their names, right? Normally in a high level Nature Magazine art, you'd get actual people. Some scientists believe. What is believe? Is believe a science term? It would be discover, know, calculated. Those are scientific terms. What is believe? It's a faith term. Some scientists have faith that RNA emerged directly from these reactive chemicals nudged along. What? How much is a nudge? Is that a one pound force? Is that a 20 pound? What exactly is a nudge? By dynamic forces, not just ordinary forces. These are charismatic, awesome forces. <laughs> Six, nucleotides, the building blocks of RNA, eventually formed. Wait, how? There's a big gigantic step. You just, they formed, how? Don't worry about it, just believe me. Cause I believe it. Then join together to make strands of RNA. This is my favorite. Some stages in this process are still not well understood. Yeah, like all of them. <laughs> we know, we know, we know. Actually, we don't know. How about the origin of the universe? Because it was always, listen, this is how stars form, right? There was the big bang and this gaseous cloud and this gaseous cloud, gravity kind of grabbed it and crushed it together. And as it crushed together, the weight of it ignited the nuclear fires of a star and boom, out of it spit all the elements that we now enjoy, right? And we know this is what happened. Is that true? Have you heard of this guy? Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? Pretty big time, famous guy, very smart guy. Listen to what he says in a moment of honesty, quoting him. Not all gas clouds in the Milky Way can form stars at all times. More often than not, the cloud is confused. <laughs> I'm so sad for him. We should get a government grant to help confuse clouds, right? It's very important, don't want you confused. 
More often than not, the cloud is confused about what to do next. Actually, astrophysicists, which is what he is, are the confused ones here. We know the cloud wants to collapse under its own weight to make one or more stars. But rotation, as well as turbulent motion within the cloud, work against that fate. So too does ordinary gas pressure you learned about in high school chemistry class. That is, when you compress a gas, what happens? It heats up. When you heat up a gas, what does it do? It expands. So the very force that they say contracted and crushed a star into a star actually would fight against it. Galactic magnetic fields also fight collapse. They penetrate the cloud and latch onto any free roaming charged particles contained therein, restricting the ways in which the cloud will respond to its self-gravity. The scary part is that if none of us knew in advance that stars exist, Frontline research would offer plenty of convincing reasons for why stars could never form. We know, we know, we know. Actually, we don't know. The public taught side is like, we got it. The private true side is, we're clueless. I call this Star Wars. (laughs) And if you're interested in the origin of life stuff, Stephen Meyer wrote a book, I think it was 2019, he finished it. It's called Darwin's Doubt. It's unbelievable. Thick, gigantically thick. And then he followed it up with another one called The Return of the God Hypothesis in 2022. I've read them both. They are brilliant. They're just saying, it doesn't work. Neo-Darwinism and Darwinism, they just don't work. Those systems fail. So how did stars get here? Listen to what the Bible says, Isaiah 40, 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out the host by number, calling them all by name. There's a billion, billion stars. God knows every single name of them. How crazy is that? I have five kids. I've struggled with them. Myron, Elijah, Krista, you here now, right? Read Job 38, when Job finally gets God's answer and God begins to talk poetically about creation and says this, when I made the stars, the angels were in heaven singing. That's who made the stars. That's who made it, okay? Everyone eventually will believe in a virgin birth. Either you're gonna believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, or you're gonna believe the virgin birth of the universe. You're gonna believe in one of them. You're gonna believe in one. I'm convinced Jesus is creator of all. And he's sustainer, number four, the sustainer of all. And by him, thank you. I do appreciate that. (laughs) He's number four, the sustainer. And in him, all things hold together. Thinking about creation, because it's talking about creation right there. When we're looking at creation, Jesus holds it all together. Have you ever thought, when you see pictures by the Hubble telescope of galaxies and their beauty and the star formation and how, in the, how does this stuff all just stay the way it is? It's beautiful. You just look at our own solar system. How do we continue to rotate just perfectly around the sun? 
the moon around us. Like, this is amazing how this system works, right? It's incredible. How about even smaller than that, atomic? Like the atom. Here's what happens in an atom. You have a nucleus and the nucleus contains protons and some neutrons. And the protons are what? Positively charged particles. Well, guess what? Coulomb's law says, like charges repel each other. It's like taking two norths of a magnet and trying to push them together. They repel. So you've got all these positively charged particles shoved into a nucleus and they, won't, they don't want to be there. They don't want to be next to each other. They want to get there constantly pushing away from each other. So what in the world holds them together? Plutonium has 239 protons smashed together. What holds them together? Well, when it was first discovered 70, 80 years ago, they called it atomic glue, right? You've got protons, the smallest kind of parts of matter. What's, what's glue in between them? There can't be anything. It was just a, we don't know, atomic glue. Now they call it pi and k masons, if you've been reading that. What are they? Nobody knows. Nobody knows what holds the nucleus together. Here's what we do know. If it gets disruptive, if plutonium-239 gets disrupted and those neutrons and protons begin to push away from each other, what happens? It's a nuclear bomb. That's how powerful that force is simply holding the very atoms of our body together. What holds it together? Could it be Jesus? He holds it all together. How about the galaxies? The beautiful way that they seem to just revolve. They're not going chaotic and crazy and stuff smashing into each other. Why is it that way? Well, it's called gravitation, Newtonian physics, right? Mass and mass and distance and rotation, all that stuff. But here's what's crazy. The guys that study this, they've calculated out and they've looked at the mass of stars and they calculate out trajectories and guess what they found? It shouldn't work. They're missing 90% of the matter to make the universe work like we think the universe should work. They call it dark matter. We can't find it. There should be all this other matter out there to make things revolve the way that they should. Why does it stay this way? Where is the dark matter? Maybe it's simply Jesus holding it all together so the systems work correctly. Maybe it's the spirit world. Maybe there is. God has a kavod. The Hebrew literally means a weight. Maybe it's the spirit realm. That's the dark matter that we can't find. Here's what I know. The Bible simply says, in him, all things are held together. Here's what I know. Jesus has the whole world in his hands. That's what I know. Here's what I know. Jesus holds things together. And if my life or my marriage or my kids or my bank account or whatever feels like it's falling apart and going in a million chaotic directions, guess what? I have the privilege and the benefit to bow my knee before the sustainer who holds all things together and he'll hold me together. That's what I know for sure. He's the sustainer. Yeah, there you go. You have to bring my kids to this service. <laughs> See? Pretty good. <laughs> Number five, he is before all things. Colossians 1.17. He's before it. So if you've ever had kids or watched kids at a playground, they'll go get on a toy or they'll ride a bike or they'll have something and then they'll let it go and another kid will grab it and the first kid will come back over and what will that kid say? I was here first, right? I was first. 
Like that somehow gives you status. Here's what, here's what Jesus is. He's before all things. It means this. He's not first. He's before the first, meaning he is eternal. Before there was anything, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit existed throughout eternity. He's before all things, the ever existing one. Number six, he is the resurrected king of the universe. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the firstborn from the dead. The greatest proof of Jesus and the resurrection and that he is God in the flesh is there were men that hung out with him for three and a half years. They ate with him. They saw him hungry. They saw him tired. They saw crowds packed in on him, taking from him, wanting more stuff from him. They saw it all. They saw him in storms. They saw him in happy times. They saw him in hard times. They saw him for three and a half years. And after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, they said, he's God. And they paid for that statement with their blood. Watched him, lived with him. He's God. I live with my wife, which is a good idea. You have a wife, you should live with her. But if you went to my wife and you said this, you said, hey, is Matt God? She would lovingly and kindly say, yes. She'd say, no, love him, but no. If you went to my family who I grew up with, my siblings, my brother, my sister, and you were like, hey, is, is Matt God? They're gonna be like, yeah, we like him, but yeah, one time he knocked me out with a dirt clod. He's not God. The men that knew Jesus best proclaimed he was God in the flesh and paid for it with their blood. James, the half brother of Jesus, grew up with Jesus, would have seen Jesus in all the stages believes, becomes a pillar of the church. Here's what happens to him. When the church was getting too powerful and disrupting the system there and tipping the apple cart and making everything different, the powers grabbed James and said, recant. He said, no, Jesus is God. They took him to the pinnacle of the temple, 75, 80 feet in the air. They took him up there and said, recant or we'll throw you off this. He said, no, Jesus is God. And they threw him off. His legs were busted. Spine probably busted. He's down there gurgling in blood. They come down to him and they say, recant. He says, no, Jesus is God. And they smashed his skull with a stone. You only do that if you know for certain. The greatest proof that Jesus is king, the resurrected king of the universe is the people that knew him the best, paid for it, believed in it to their own blood. Here's the best news you're ever gonna get. Jesus is alive. It was true 2000 years ago and it's true today. That's the best news ever. It was so powerful that Jewish people who for 1400 years had Sabbath day on Saturday, so powerful was the resurrection because it happened on Sunday that they switched the day they worshiped on. That's how you don't change 1400 years unless something radical and incredible happens. And it did. Jesus Christ walked out of the grave. That's the best news ever. He is alive. There are lots of famous grave sites where people go and make pilgrimages to. I've been to Israel twice. I've been to all kinds of graves there. Absalom's grave, Rachel's grave. Where's Jesus? 
They can't find him. Imagine that, right? They can't find him. Imagine if they could find him. How many people would buy tickets to that? Move over Taylor Swift. There's a new king in town, right? That's what would happen. But they can't because Jesus is alive. He is the resurrected king of the universe. And it says, because of that, he's the head of the church. When you got ready for church today, what did you focus on? Did you make sure your liver looked good? Get that appendix all fixed up? No, what did we concentrate on? Our head, why? Eight hours of damage, I gotta repair it. The focus is on the head. In the church, the focus has to be on the head, on Jesus. So perhaps you've noticed since we started the book of Colossians, we've been singing this anthem, all glory be to Christ. That's on purpose because the focus has to be on the head. It's all glory to Jesus. So here's, here's the danger in church. Have you heard of this disease called cerebral palsy? People that have it, that they lose motor function. So they drool and their arms flop and, and their, their motor skills are gone. And it makes it look like they have a mental handicap. But in 95% or 75% of the cases of cerebral palsy, it's not, their brains work perfectly fine. It's the body does not obey the head. And it looks like a drooling, floppy mess, but the brain is perfect. I think sometimes the church gets cerebral palsy. We get disconnected from the head. We stop focusing on him. We stopped allowing him to be preeminent. We stopped allowing him to be the resurrected king. We start wanting to take in some glory for ourselves and we become drooling, flopping messes. We're vulnerable. Jesus has to be preeminent. If Edgewater's gonna be what it's gonna be, if I'm gonna be what I'm gonna be, if my family's gonna be what they're gonna be, then Jesus has to be the focus. Over and over again, it's Jesus. He is the preeminent one. We learn of him, we listen to him, and we obey him. That's when it gets brilliant. And then lastly and finally, he's reconciler. And you who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation in heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He's a reconciler. So let me give you the big idea of this and then the details. Jesus through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension is making a group of people in which heaven will feel exactly like home. That's what he's doing. Something come down on me? Here's what, here's what blocks that. We have a problem. It says this, and you who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We had a problem. We think wrongly and then our wrong thoughts begin to be in actions and we damage and harm God's good, beautiful creation. It's his property. Whenever we hurt somebody, 
we're hurting God's property. Do you know that? So how in the world do you make that up? When I have hurt another human, God's property, how do I possibly make that up? Do I promise him to be better? Does that actually solve anything in the past? So if I've gossiped about somebody and told untruths about them, and a group of people have believed them and now demonized this person, I, I can go and try to say, I'm sorry, but can you undo that damage? No, because it's lodged in our heads and we remember it, okay? I can be forgiven, but I can never be faultless. I can do better next time and not do it again, but I'll never be blameless. There's always a cosmic debt that I cannot pay. And that's what Jesus paid, verse 22. That on the cross, Jesus pays the cosmic debt that you and I can never pay. And when he pays it, this is what happens. It says, we become holy, blameless, and above reproach. Well, how in the world does that happen? Here's how. Over and over in the Bible, it says that we are in him. Read the New Testament, especially the epistles. And it'll say, because we are in him, all these promises, all these truths, all these new characteristics are true of us for one reason, because of who we are in. Not because of who I am or how good I've done. It's because of one thing, because of my position in Christ Jesus, everything changes. Maybe I'll illustrate it like this. So let's say I take this napkin right here and I've got a cold. So I need to blow my nose. I just blow a big giant honker in there. Just, ah, there it is. All right. Does anyone want this now? I'll autograph it. Right? It's evil. It's gross. It's disgusting. But I take it and I slip it into my Bible and I shut my Bible, what do you see now? Just the characteristics of my Bible. That all that nastiness, all that snot is covered. That's the truth of what happens when you and I categorically are put into Christ. Everything that we were, everything that was bad, everything that was, it's not seen anymore. We become blameless, holy, above reproach. Wait, Matt. It continues, it says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. It says, if I'm not sure that I'm still saved, I think I lost my salvation. Can you lose your salvation? Let me put it like this. If you stay, you're saved. If you leave, you weren't. Read 1 John 2.19. John says this, they went out from us because they were never a part of us. That there can be a Judas. He seems really close. He's in the crew. He's kind of around it all. But guess what? Given time and the right circumstances, he's out. If you stay, you're saved. If you weren't, if you don't, you weren't. It's that simple. But if you have believed in the Jesus that was laid out in verses 15 through 23 by Paul, if you put your faith in him, you're saved. And you are changed. Something inside of you has been transformed for all eternity. I put it like this. 
once a pickle, never a cucumber again. You cannot unpickle a cucumber. That when you get saved and you get a new heart and something transforms inside of you, praise God, you're pickled and you're never going back. And Jesus holds on to you and you stay in. That's the good news.